6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Wednesday. It is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Uh, we're in our nine days format, spoken word format with uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, the majority of our uh, of our lectures. Later on today, because it's the 3rd of Av, and it's the anniversary of the date that it was originally delivered, uh, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, delivered at the Rebbe Shloshim. We will have that for you here at the JM and the AM. So that's all coming up. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, uh, we are going to conclude part one. Uh, there's a five-part series of his part one on Jews in Europe. The final piece of the part one lecture series is a Protestant Europe, and that's how we're going to uh, begin. This, is a, this was a relatively recent lecture, about a year ago, delivered in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Beryl Wine uh, here... Uh, to teach us and uh, inform us about some of the things about Jewish history that we should know about. Protestant Europe is the name of the lecture. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. Uh, tonight's topic is uh, the uh, Protestant Europe and its effect on the Jews. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, was pretty much under siege uh, for a few hundred years by heresies, different ideas uh, that contradicted Catholic doctrine. And uh, the institution of the Holy Office of the Inquisition, which was meant to uproot uh, these types of doctrines, as well as to make certain that those who converted to Catholicism, especially the Jews, uh, did not revert back to Judaism. This inquisition was really uh, an act of desperation by the church because uh, it was an admission that, so to speak, the church could not win the war of ideas and therefore they were going to win it by killing and torturing people. In the uh, 14th century, uh, the church had, for a period of time, three popes at one time. It was called the Great Schism, or uh, the Babylonian Exile. It came about because the French king uh, was very uh, disappointed in the actions of the Italian pope, and therefore he decided that he was going to appoint the French pope. And the seat of the French pope was in Avignon in Provence. If you go to Provence today, to Avignon, you can see the great papal palace there. And for 70 years, there was a pope in Rome, and there was a pope in, there was a pope in Avignon as well. Each one naturally excommunicated the other one. 
So in heaven they would have a difficult time sorting the matter out. Uh, There was a period of time when the cardinals got together and they said enough of this. We're going to get a a third pope, a compromised pope. And the other popes agreed that they would resign. But uh, when each of the three popes got the job, then nobody resigned. So you had this great schism in the church. It lasted 70 years. That's why it was called the Babylonian exile. And uh, it weakened the church, as you can imagine, profoundly. As any dispute within a religious community uh, weakens that community. After that, uh, you had other uh, types of schisms Uh, which the church always put down by burning the heretics at the stake. If you go to Prague, in the central square of Prague, there's the memorial to Hus, who was burned by the church for having heretic ideas. Uh, Heresies abounded. Uh, And because of that, therefore, the church felt very threatened. The greatest heresy was the Jews. Uh, The Jewish heresy was the primary heresy. It was the main uh, heresy that denied everything about Christianity. And yet the Jews lived in the midst of Catholic Europe, Christian Europe, and uh, somehow the church had to contend with that. And uh, it wavered between... uh, forced conversions, pogroms, coming to some sort of accommodation with the Jews. But uh, the problem never was solved, Uh, just as in our time it has also never been solved. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, uh, this led to a a very uncomfortable relationship. Now, the... uh, great crisis of the Catholic Church was about to come and that first came in the form of the Renaissance and the Renaissance was uh, a uh, an idea basically in Italy but it spread throughout Europe of uh, restoring uh, the culture that existed in the time of the Greeks and the Romans Uh, It emphasized art and music, uh, architecture, and most importantly, it opened the door to science. Now, the Catholic Church, unlike Judaism, the Catholic Church married itself to Aristotelian, not just Aristotelian philosophy, but to Aristotelian science. And... uh, it uh, therefore was in great danger when all of those scientific ideas were about to be disproved. Uh, the great trial of Galileo. Uh, Galileo said that the, all the planets revolve about the sun. The church said all the planets revolve about the earth. Uh, they forced Galileo to publicly recant his ideas 
But once the idea is out there, uh, you can't put it back in the bottle. And uh, it was uh, this uh, scientific error of the church, and there were many such errors, that uh, sooner or later put the church in a very difficult position because of the fact that uh, the wise men of the Renaissance all uh, brought about great change in human thinking. Uh, the world was no longer flat because Vasco da Gama had sailed around it, shown it to be round. Uh, the sun was the center of the, of the galaxy. And there were other scientific discoveries. Uh, Newtonian physics would come into play, the ideas of gravity. Now, all of these things took away these superstitions that had existed until now. And to a certain extent, uh, the church had thrived on those superstitions. And now the scientific fact showed that the church was not infallible, certainly in terms of science. So then uh, part of the Renaissance was that uh, people became uh, scholars, became interested in Hebrew and in the Bible. For instance, uh, Rabbeinu Avadius Forno, the great commentator to the Bible, to the Chumash that we have, uh, he taught the Johannes Reuchlin, who was one of the leaders of Renaissance thought, he taught him Hebrew. And basically he taught him Chumash. And the Jews were seen as a reservoir of knowledge. The Jews were so, there were no more Greeks left and there were no more Romans left. We wanted to know something about the ancient world. The only ones that knew anything about the ancient world were the Jews because they still were the ancient world. And therefore, uh, uh, but you have, uh, you have the phenomena that we all know uh, that the world uh, likes uh, Hebrew but not Hebrews and the world likes Judaism but not Jews. And uh, that existed throughout the Renaissance as well. Now, the Renaissance had an effect on Jews as well, especially Jews in Italy, because uh, the Renaissance came to uh, uh, develop a rational world, and not an irrational one, not a supernatural one. And uh, we have here, for the first time, uh, a basic clash within the Jewish world of ideas. Uh, beginning with the Ramban and continuing for the next few centuries until the time of the Ari, Kabbalah became uh, much more influential in the Jewish world than it had been earlier. In the times of Rashi, we are unaware of Kabbalah. Uh, The Rambam apparently was unaware of it. But now everybody was aware of it. Kabbalah posits a mystical world, uh, a world that uh, negates to a great extent the real world, quote-unquote, that we exist in. It reinterprets the Bible and all of rabbinic literature 
in a different fashion completely. And it introduces a strong strain of mysticism, supernaturalism uh, into uh, Jewish life and Jewish custom. Now, there were those that opposed that. There were those that denied the uh, holiness of the book of the Zohar, which tradition ascribed to Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, but it was publicized by a man... Moshe de Leon in Spain at the end of the 15th century and they said that that was de Leon wrote the book it's not from Rabshim ben Yochai and it denied pretty much all of the Kabbalistic ideas Uh, that was Renaissance thought Renaissance thought was rational whatever you see, scientific and uh, in uh, Italy there were a number of Italian rabbis Arye di Modena Azaria de Rossi and others who uh, led the anti-Kabbalah charge and who uh, were so to speak uh, already uh, on the edge of tradition if not outside tradition now, Azariah de Rossi, Azariah Mina Adomim, wrote a book called the Moore Nayim, which proved to be very popular. And the Moore Nayim uh, debunked uh, many uh, legends and even Agadah, uh, even uh, traditional Jewish legends. And the book gained wide circulation. Uh, the Maral of Prague, who was a Kabbalist, uh, took on uh, De Rossi and uh, bitterly uh, attacked him and in fact had his book banned which only increased its sales as is usually the case and now you had this split and uh, this split existed for centuries and centuries in modern times for instance German Jewry was hardly ever affected by Kabbalah. And even though amongst Lithuanian Jewry there were many great Kabbalists, but Lithuanian Jewry did not operate on a Kabbalistic system, whereas uh, Hasidic Jewry is purely Kabbalistic, and it operates under that system today. And uh, this is like a... uh, disagreement that simmers below the surface it has to do with a lot of what we see going on uh, in the disputes within the Jewish people is what kind of world are we living in what's the real world and what's the imaginary world and how do we react to either all of this came about in the renaissance so the renaissance affected Jews greatly now what happened was that Henry VIII wanted to get rid of one of his wives because he wanted to marry another one. And uh, England then was Roman Catholic. So he uh, wanted the Pope to grant him an annulment. Now one of the powers of the church is that it can annul marriages. The church does not recognize divorce 
but it does allow for annulment. Now that's a slippery slope of how to obtain an annulment. The Pope and Henry could not agree for political reasons, diplomatic reasons, all sorts of reasons. So Henry uh, broke off from the Catholic Church and he created the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which is really the beginning of Protestantism, even though the Anglican Church at its core is basically an imitation of the Catholic Church, except that it does not recognize the Pope of Rome. for uh, a long period of time, over a century, there was a civil war in England between the Catholics and the Anglicans uh, with terrible atrocities committed on both sides until Queen Elizabeth finally, she killed uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was Catholic. Then James I was Catholic. But eventually England became officially a Protestant country. But the defection of England was not the main blow to the church. There were no Jews in England at the time, though Henry VIII had a leather-bound, handwritten copy of the Talmud in his library, which you can see at the British National Library today. Uh, But uh, there were no Jews, and there were no Jews in France either to speak of. And there were no Jews in Spain because they were all expelled, with the exception of the conversos who constituted a significant part of the Spanish population. Uh, So uh, that didn't really affect the Jews. However, uh, what comes about is... uh, The church had a great uh, fundraising apparatus. Rome, uh, all all religions require money. That's part of their problem. If we could have a money-free religion, a lot of problems would uh, dissipate. But everybody has to raise money. The money corrupts. The money corrupts even... Uh, the most holy of uh, of items. The Torah says, "Ki hashochad yaver ene pikim v'salev divrei tzadikim." That the corruption of money is such that it blinds the wise to the reality of the situation, and it distorts the words of those who are tzadikim, who are holy people. But even holy people, if they are tinged by money, so then it becomes a problem. Uh, no one has figured out, you know, how to do it without money. Though uh, in our time, I would say that money plays a far greater role than it ever has in Jewish life. That's because there is so much money. You know, if everybody is poor, so everybody is poor. So there's not much money around. And uh, the less money around, the less corruption. But when there's a lot of money around and uh, the demands of religion grow, uh, so then uh, the temptations for corruption are enormous. So the church always needed money. 
I mean, you take a look at the Vatican, you know, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't built by passing the, the poor box. And one of the ways in the Middle Ages that it raised money, an enormous sums of money, was the sale of what they called indulgences. Now, the idea of indulgences is as follows. It's really a great tool. The church has hundreds of saints, maybe thousands of saints. These saints are so holy that they build up credit in heaven. They've got an account in heaven of good things that they did. The church itself doesn't need all of that credit because the church by nature is holy. So it's got all this surplus credit. So it can sell it to you who need it. A person is a sinner. And we have to remember that in the Middle Ages and later even, hell was a real place. People took it into consideration very seriously. In the modern world, it doesn't exist. Even amongst the believers, it doesn't exist. But in that world, it did exist. And if uh, you look at the art of uh, Hieronymus Bosch and other great painters of the era, and they paint what goes on in hell, it's pretty frightening. It, uh, you know, it gives you pause, let's put it that way. So if you didn't want to go to hell, you needed credit. And you don't have the credit because you're a sinner. But the church can sell you credit. The church can sell you an indulgence. And the indulgence will allow you to escape hell. Because now you acquired some of the merits of... J.M. in the A.M., I'm not quite sure. Um, looks like we had a slight problem with our lecture from Rabbi Wine, but now I think we can rejoin it. And they paint what goes on in hell. It's pretty frightening. It, uh, you know, it gives you pause, let's put it that way. So if you didn't want to go to hell, you needed credit. And you don't have the credit because you're a sinner. But the church can sell you credit. The church can sell you an indulgence. And the indulgence will allow you to escape hell because now you acquired some of the merits of saints who didn't need it for themselves so they can help you. That's a crude uh, description of indulgences, but it gives you the idea. And the church sold it. And they sold it on an enormous basis. And therefore, uh, the local parish priest sold it, the cardinal sold it, the bishop sold it, even the pope sold it, depending how much you needed. And everybody took a commission, because there's a brokerage fee in hell also. 
and therefore uh, the church became uh, overridden with corruption and then there were fakes people who dressed as priests and said they'll sell you and they really didn't have the goods so there were con men I mean everything was going on I mean Judaism never had that system Uh, Judaism believes that everybody's pretty much on their own though uh, in our time we notice that there are people who are able to sell at least semi-indulgences amongst the Jewish people as well now this corruption eventually reached such levels that the people began to rebel against it and this was the primary reason uh, that a German priest by the name of Martin Luther arose and he had over 90 complaints about the church he nailed them to the door of the cathedral and uh, he demanded that the church reform itself Uh, the church naturally saw him as a heretic but he had gathered uh, enough popular support especially in Germany that the church couldn't get hold of him and they couldn't kill him and he uh, is the father uh, let us say of the Protestant movement certainly of the church that's named after in the Lutheran church and now there was a 30 years war in Europe between the Catholics and the Protestants religious wars never end they resurface in different forms but as we are witness there is no war like a religious war and this 30 years war uh, engulfed Europe devastated it and naturally it affected the Jews as well now Luther thought that because uh, he revolted against the Catholic Church he had the same idea that Muhammad had Muhammad said well the Jews don't believe in Christianity because it's uh, semi-pagan but uh, Islam is completely monotheistic has no uh, idols or symbols so the Jews will certainly convert to Islam and he was quite disappointed when that did not happen and because of that it turned him into writing very bitter things against the Jews in the Koran well the same thing happened to Luther Luther thought the objections of the Jews to Roman Catholicism were valid but that's because Roman Catholicism was semi-pagan, was corrupt, was coercive and therefore his brand of Christianity this new Protestantism would certainly be acceptable to Jews they would certainly want it and naturally the Jews didn't want it it made no difference to them whether you believed in the Trinity or not or whether you believed in the Pope in Rome or not and none of those things had any effect upon the Jews and therefore Luther turned into a bitter anti-Semite a crude a vulgar anti-Semite many of the things that uh, 
the Nazis wrote about the Jews were taken straight from Luther's writings about the Jews. Let me just share with you uh, just a few uh, words of his. All the blood kindred of the Jews will burn in hell and they are rightly served even according to their own words as they spoke to Pilate to the Roman emperor so again the deicide that the Jews are guilty of verily a hopeless wicked venomous and devilish thing are the Jews and he goes on to say uh, the, that the Jews are only interested in money and the only Bible that the Jews are ruled by is the droppings from the back of a female pig oh, that is not too philosophic uh, but it certainly says what the story was, what he felt about the Jews. And therefore, in the Thirty Years' War, the Jews were caught in a vice that no matter who won, they lost. And therefore, as a consequence of the Thirty Years' War, which mainly took place in Germany and Central Europe, the Habsburg Empire, etc., uh, the Jews all tried to leave and moved east into Poland because that was not involved. Poland remained staunchly Roman Catholic as did Lithuania, as did Ukraine. There the problem was the Eastern Orthodox Church as I discussed with you last week. But the uh, church itself uh, was, did not suffer for Poland never became Protestant. And uh, the Jews therefore moved. And you have uh, an enormous Jewish migration into Eastern Europe. And Jews settled everywhere in Poland and in the Baltic states. And they built their communities there. Now originally they were invited into Poland by the Polish noblemen who felt the Jews would develop the country, which they did. And the Jews uh, had an affinity to Poland uh, they called it in Hebrew Polin, meaning here we will sleep over the night of the exile. Here, this is this is the place where we'll be. Uh, Jewish life begins in Poland in the 1200s. It, uh, in the 1500s that we're talking about, uh, it uh, expands enormously. Uh, there were cities that became almost completely Jewish cities. And because of that, therefore, the Protestants did not have much of an effect on the Jews because they moved to the Catholic countries. However, and I, this is a big however, it's a theory that I have uh, researched for a long time, and you all know that I'm never wrong, so... <laughs> That's probably correct. The Protestant Revolution, the Reformation in Europe, the breaking of the power of the Catholic Church, had a great psychological effect on the Jews as well, and a religious effect on the Jews. Uh, 
to put it in an extreme fashion, the Reformation versus the Catholic Church fathered reform against traditional Jewry because it showed that what had been held sacrosanct for centuries and the dominant belief uh, you didn't have to believe that way you could adjust it to whatever you wanted to now the Protestants split into hundreds of different sects as uh, they exist today uh, Christianity is uh, I think it has uh, 140, 150 different uh, church establishments it's uh, very uh, badly split with all sorts of ideas and many times the ideas are uh, completely contradictory one to another but uh, the fact that the Protestant Reformation was successful that the Roman Catholic Church could not put it down and not only could not put it down by force but could not put it down by ideas it couldn't overwhelm it, uh, created an atmosphere. Now, in the Jewish world, also, uh, there had always been uh, deviant ideas, different sects, uh, different beliefs. The Karoyim, the Karaites existed in Europe. Other people existed in Europe. There always was a discussion and there were differing views differing views on uh, Torah I mentioned differing views on Kabbalah different views on a lot of things now as long as the Catholic Church was the Catholic Church so then the Jews could also say well there's no room for differing views we have a great phrase in Yiddish meaning the way it is amongst the non-Jews that's the way it eventually is amongst the Jews as well so as long as there was so to speak a monolithic church and there was a set of beliefs that everybody held to be sacrosanct so then Judaism also operated under that uh, type of mindset but when that mindset changed which is what the Protestant Revolution was Protestant Reformation when now it said uh, the Pope is wrong, uh, the Trinity is not true, uh, Catholicism for the last thousand years has been telling you stories that, is not, that are not true, and the church is corrupt. All of those things, even though they're not addressed to the Jews, had an influence on the Jews. And uh, no uh, religion is composed of perfect people. And therefore... Uh, we did not have indulgences but we had other problems anyone who studies the rabbinic response of the time will see all sorts of problems that exist in the Jewish world and therefore it's easy to criticize it's easy to throw out the the baby with the bathwater, as we see every day in our newspapers now one of the things that existed in the Jewish world at this time was messianism the belief in the messiah not only the belief that the messiah is eventually going to come it's the messiah he's here we just don't recognize him 
So in the 15th century, there was a, a man came, his name was David Horuveni, a great con artist. And he came and he said that he, uh, you know, there's a Jewish legend that the ten tribes, the ten lost tribes, are behind the magical river called the Sambation. And the Sambation is fire and it throws bricks and nobody can escape it, etc. It only rests on Shabbat. And that's where the ten tribes are hidden. And they're going to be hidden there until the Messiah comes and takes them to the land of Israel. This was a, uh, I think, almost a universal belief in the Jewish world, certainly in the Middle Ages. Here comes a man who says he's from the tribe of Ruvain, David Horuveni. And he tells a, a fantastic story of how he got across this river and that he's here to herald the coming of the Messiah. And he travels throughout Europe. And he is welcomed by Jewish communities. He's given great honor. He even gets an audience with the Pope in Rome. The Pope interviews him. And the Jews are uh, packing their bags. They're ready to go. Uh, But then he is uh, arrested by uh, one of the Spanish noblemen. He overplayed his hand. Oh, oh, oh. False messiahs overplay their hand, and he is arrested and he dies in prison. So that's the end of that chapter. But messianism doesn't die with him. And we have uh, the champion false messiah, Shabzai Tzvi in the 17th century, a Jew from Turkey, from Smyrna, who says he's the messiah. And he had a great publicist. Every Messiah needs public relations. You need an advertising agency. So the Christian world had Paul, who was a great publicist. Uh, Shabzai Tzvi had a man called Nathan of Gaza, Natan Azati. And he publicized him throughout the Jewish world, and he had great success. It's estimated that a third of the Jewish people believed in him. Great rabbis believed in him. And then at the end, he converted to Islam. So uh, this caused great divisions within the Jewish people. Uh, Because then it became a question of uh, backlash, uh, you know, and getting even, and putting people into uh, excommunication. So it was a uh, terrible time. And then there developed an idea amongst the Protestants, not amongst the Catholics. The Catholics held, Catholic theology holds that the Jews are to be eternally punished for not accepting Christianity. Therefore, they have to stay in exile forever. And they can never have a national state. Uh, when Theodore, you have to understand all of this because it explains a lot of what goes on now. We know, no one, uh, no one talks in these terms, but uh, this is what underlies it. Uh, when Herzl uh, wanted to get the Zionist movement started, he went to see the Pope in Rome, Pope Leo, 
and he wanted the Pope, naively, he wanted the Pope to support the idea. And the Pope told him that the only solution to the Jewish problem is that all the Jews should convert to Christianity. And therefore, uh, a Jewish national state, or the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, is a theological problem to the Catholic Church. It's a good kasha. Now, the Protestants were split. There was a large section of the Protestant movement that agreed with the Catholics. But there was a substantial portion of the Protestant movement that said no, that the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is a condition precedent to the Christian Messiah's return. In other words, we should support it because by supporting it, we bring closer the second coming. And that's the origin of uh, Christian Zionism in the 19th century. Uh, and it's pretty much the origin of the support of the state of Israel by the fundamentalist Christian organizations in the United States and by the money they pour into the country. So even though they don't officially convert anyone or proselytize, but the reason for it is because of the fact that this is going to help create uh, the situation that all Christians are waiting for, which is the second return of their Messiah. Uh, So uh, this uh, difference uh, affects the Jews and affects us today it affects us in a great way and there's as usual different opinions amongst the Jewish people uh, regarding uh, for instance accepting uh, money uh, but they support so many good social causes here in Israel so many people benefit from it so many institutions And as I mentioned before, money is a very, very difficult thing to deal with. To be able to say, on principle, I'm going to offer you a million dollars, etc. No strings attached. But the big string that's attached is uh, the narrative that is involved in this. Now, in the Protestant movement, uh, for instance, uh, let's take the pilgrims that came to the United States just recovering from our Turkey, uh, the pilgrims. There was a vote on the Mayflower. The pilgrims felt that they are coming to a brand new country. They didn't take into account that the people who lived here had any uh, right to live here. And uh, so they took a vote in this new country, what language should be the official language of the new country? So two languages were proposed, English and Hebrew. And Hebrew lost by a few votes. It's remarkable to think, had Hebrew won, because then all of our yeshiva students would speak Hebrew. But uh, the pilgrims, uh, on one hand, uh, knew Hebrew, studied the Bible, respected Jewish heritage. But on the other hand, 
were very bigoted against Jews. There were only certain colonies in the original colonies of the United States where Jews were, so to speak, accepted. Roger Williams in Rhode Island and the southern colonies where the Jews came from the West Indies. But Massachusetts and Vermont, etc., they were bastions of anti-Jewish thought, even though, as I mentioned before, they loved Hebrew, but not the Hebrews. And this uh, idea that existed uh, played a great role in the relations. There was a Jew by the name of Menashe ben Yisrael. Menashe ben Yisrael was a rabbi in Amsterdam in the 17th century. He was a great Talmudic scholar. He was born in uh, Portugal to a Murano family, and he was raised as a Christian. And the family later escaped to Amsterdam. Amsterdam was the refuge for the Spanish and Portuguese Jews. He escaped there, and there he received his Jewish knowledge and his rabbinic training, and he became a rabbi, a very famous rabbi, Menashe ben Yisrael. He travels to England and appears before Parliament and the court of the king to ask that England allow Jews legally to be readmitted to the country. And his main argument was that according to Protestant theology, before the Christian Messiah can come again, uh, the Jews have to be scattered all over the world. And if they're not in England, they're not scattered all over the world. So in effect, you're holding up the coming of the second, uh, of the, uh, the second coming of the Messiah. And therefore, you have to uh, now to, to have such a convoluted idea. But it uh, it had, so to speak, a basis, because that's how they saw the world. And because of that, therefore, uh, the Jews in Western Europe began to change. They began to uh, see the coming of the Protestant uh, Reformation and uh, the science and everything as, uh, so to speak, loosening the bonds that they had to Jewish tradition. And that would uh, take place. We're going to talk about it in the next lecture. Uh, When the Enlightenment came, uh, so then uh, Reform came. So Reform is the Jewish Protestantism. It's the same rebellion. Maybe it has different causes, and maybe it uh, reflects itself in a different fashion, but basically it is the same thing. It's uh, Luther's rebellion against the church, is Geiger's rebellion against traditional Judaism. And that's what I meant when I said that whatever happens in the non-Jewish world happens in the Jewish world as well. Two more points, uh, and then we'll be done with this brilliant lecture. One is that uh, the uh, Protestant Reformation uh, brought about uh, capitalism in a great extent. There's a famous theory, uh, many books have been written upon it, 
and courses in the university to tie the rise of capitalism to the rise of the Protestant movement. But there's no question that the Protestant movement, the Roman Catholic Church was bound by strictures which uh, made capitalism uh, difficult. Laws of usury, uh, questions of credit, and the control of the church. The church wanted to control all money also. Anytime you have uh, government uh, control all money, so you have a stagnant economy. The rise of free capitalism uh, coincided with the fact that England and uh, other countries in Europe, Germany, which were the main economies, uh, were Protestant. And uh, they allowed for uh, what later would be the Industrial Revolution, the mercantile system, all of these ideas upon which uh, modern civilization is based, uh, all because of the fact that uh, the Reformation had loosened the hold of the church on uh, financial transactions. It also gave Jews an opportunity. Uh, Jews uh, functioned very well in a capitalist society because of the fact that uh, it allowed for service industries, it allowed for new products, it allowed for competition, all of which uh, did not exist uh, before, and in an agricultural society, it certainly did not exist. So therefore, uh, this rise of Protestantism, the rise of uh, the mercantile system and of uh, modern economies, uh, had a great effect on the, the Jewish world and how Jews dealt with it. And it remained until today. I mean, the banking system, uh, the Rothschilds, uh, and the other uh, Jewish uh, moguls who uh, uh, really transformed Europe, uh, built its railroads, uh, financed all of its problems. Uh, that was a product of the fact that under the Protestant movement, uh, there was room for such things to happen. The second thing was the fact that the, uh, the era of exploration existed. The world now was a much bigger place. You could go places. And uh, the immigration to uh, the American continent was one thing, but the Jews participated in it almost from the beginning. And the Jews were always looking for a new country, a new frontier somewhere new because the old had been so repressive and uh, that's uh, Jews came to Africa and they came to Asia uh, all of a sudden uh, uh, it, it was a much bigger world uh, than ever existed for Jews in the earliest in the earlier parts of the uh, of this age and the Protestant uh, especially the English the Catholics were with Spain, uh, those two countries uh, were the engine of exploration. And exploration always was a positive thing for Jews. It's hard for us to imagine what the Jewish world would look like uh, without the ability to immigrate to North America in the 19th century or to other parts of the world. 
all of the Jewish communities that were established. Why should Jews go to Argentina? Why should Jews go to uh, Johannesburg? Or why should Jews go to uh, other places, the faraway places? But now that exploration not only existed, but it was seen as a uh, very positive thing. It was seen as uh, advancing the cause of civilization. Jews uh, began to pack their bags and began to move. And that movement of Jews had turned out to be providential because uh, Poland and the uh, Baltic states and Germany uh, would become the graveyard of Jewry. And the Jews had not moved. Uh, so then if there would not have been these uh, conditions, so then it's hard to imagine how we would have survived. And all of this somehow, there's a guiding hand that pushes all of these events in the world and that we respond to them. And because of that, therefore, uh, all of Jewish history, all of world history uh, is influenced uh, by these types of events and these types of conditions. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi... Pretty amazing, huh? Rabbi Beryl Wine, he really is amazing. 1-800-499-WEIN for information about any of Rabbi Wine's lectures. 1-800-499-WEIN. And, uh, of course, you can uh, log on to RabbiWine.com. RabbiWEIN.com. Uh, and get information that way as well. And I thank her by one. Um, we, we've now heard through the first couple of days of our nine days format, we've now heard uh, the entire part one of the two-part series. It's it's two parts of Europe and the Jews. And part one is five lectures. Part two is five lectures. We've done the five um, uh, lectures in part one. And now we just have to get to the lectures in part two, which we will do right after our news from Israel. Uh, later on, also we're going to interrupt Rabbi Wine a little later, as we've done uh, as we've done before, um, in past years, uh, because I will be presenting my uh, father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which was delivered on the third of Av. Today is the third of Av. Oh, there we go. Uh, delivered on the third of Av. Um, delivered on the third of Av. Five seven five four. Back in 1994, it was the uh, it was the Shloshim observance of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in West Orange, New Jersey, hosted by Rabbi Herson, and um, and my father spoke and gave one of the most amazing biographical sketches of anybody that I've ever heard. Uh, it, it's really something. So that's coming up an hour from now. I hope you'll be tuned in. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Is this our... I think this is the live feed. I don't know. Things look a drop different here at Galitzal. I think this is the live feed, and if it's not, we'll know in about 20 seconds. 
67 degrees, partly cloudy, a high of 77. Wow, only 77. Partly, usually in nine days, it's like 177. Partly cloudy tonight, low 68. Tomorrow, cloudy skies, a high of 81. Yerushalayim at 94. Heat wave in Jerusalem will be there starting Wednesday next week. Uh, Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Missoura, they're at 58 degrees. And we're at 67 here in New York City as we say good morning at JM in the AM. You know the lineup for the rest of this morning here. And um, we'll continue with Rabbi Wine right after our news from Israel. Galaitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Wednesday follows next. We say Boker Toe from JM and Ann. Galaitzal, Hashash Time, Kanehud Graf, in Mashekorea Shav. משבר הר הבית, חמאס קורא לפעיליו בשטחי יהודה ושומרון לצאת לתהלוכות מחאה ביום שישי הקרוב. הדיווח של דנה גוטר. תנועת חמאס בשטחים קוראת בהכרזה לאנשיה ולעם הפלסטיני לצאת להפגין בהמוניו בשישי הקרוב לאחר תפילות הצהריים. עוד נכתב בכרזה מופצת ברשתות החברתיות, כי בשל המשך הצעדים של ישראל במתחם הר הבית, יש להפגין ולהגיע לנקודות החיכוך עם כוחות הביטחון הישראליים. בתוך כך היום קבע בית המשפט האירופי העליון כי ארגון חמאס יישאר ברשימת ארגוני הטרור של היבשת. מוקדם יותר, נשיא טורקיה ארדואן תקף שוב את ישראל ואמר לא נסתפק בהסרת הגלאים. כתבנו יותם לביא. ארדואן אמר לפני זמן קצר כי הסרת גלי המתכות שפגעו במוסלמים מהכניסות להר הבית הייתה צעד נכון, אך זה לא מספיק. כך דיווח העיתון הטורקי דיילי סבח. זאת לאחר שאמש קרא למוסלמים בארצו ובכל רחבי העולם לעלות לירושלים, וטען, ישראל מנסה לקחת את מסגד אל-אקצא מידי המוסלמים בכסות של מאמצים למלחמה בטרור. רוכב אופנוע בן 17 נהרג לאחר שנפגע ממשאית ברחוב חלוצי התעשייה בחיפה. כתבנו גיא ורון מציין כי מותו של רוכב האופנוע נקבע במקום ובוחני תנועה נמצאים כעת בזירת התאונה. גבר בן 51 מואשם בביצוע מעשה מגונה בנער בן 14 בפארק המים ימית 2000 בחולון. כתב אישום הוגש נגדו היום לבית המשפט המחוזי בתל אביב. הפרקליטות מבקשת להאריך את מעצרו עד תום ההליכים. חבר הכנסת איציק שמולי תוקף את הרב שמואל אליהו בעקבות דבריו הבוקר בגל"צ, בהם כינה את אנשי הקהילה הלהט"בית חולים. הוא שוחח בגל"צ עם יעל דן. זה כל כך חשוך וכל כך מפלה וגזעני, כל כך נמוך. אין שום ספק שהאיש הזה רוצה שישראל תהפוך להיות איראן. ואני חושב שהבן אדם החולה היחידי כאן זה הרב. תושב בת ים נעצר בחשד שהתעלל בכלב של חברו. כתבנו גל חן. החשוד בשנות ה-30 לחייו נעצר לאחר שהוגשה תלונה במשטרה על התעללות אכזרית בכלב של שותפו לדירה. על פי החשד הוא שבר את רגלו של הכלב ופצה אותו פציעות פנימיות קשות. הוא יובא היום להארכת מעצר בבית משפט השלום בתל אביב. העיתונאי יגאל סרנה, שפוטר מהעיתון ידיעות אחרונות בעקבות הפסדו בתביעת הדיבה שהגישו נגדו ראש הממשלה נתניהו ורעייתו, אומר לרינו צרור, מול העיתון נוני מוזס, נאלץ לסיים את העסקתי למרות שלא רצה בכך. אני לא חושב שנוני נפטר ממני בשמחה. אני בטוח שהוא נאלץ לזה. האויב שלי זה לא נוני מוזס, האויב שלי זה ביבי נתניהו, ואני חושב שהוא יצר סיטואציה שבה 
גם מו"ל חזק כל כך בעבר, נאלץ לעשות דברים שהוא לא שלם איתם. מזג האוויר יוסיף להיות חם מהרגיל עם עומסי חום כבדים ברוב אזורי הארץ. במישור החוף, הוויל. אלה החדשות שעורך אריאל זיגלר. J.M. in the A.M. That's Galei Tzal here for us on a Wednesday morning. Uh, we're continuing with our Iberal Wine. Uh, ready to start part two. Part one was five lectures in terms of Europe and the Jews, and now it is time for part two of the uh, lectures, uh, Europe and the Jews. This one is, uh, where are we? Here we go. This one is entitled... Uh, this lecture is entitled The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. Rabbi Beryl Wine with us during our nine days format. By the way, Rabbi Wine is going to join us Friday morning. Yeah, he will join us in the 8 o'clock hour Friday morning. Here he is with The Enlightenment at JM in the AM. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Thank you for coming. Tonight's uh, lecture concerns uh, Europe and the Enlightenment and its effect upon the Jews. Uh, at the outset, I would say that if any of the topics that we have discussed had an effect upon the Jews, none of them, with the, perhaps with the exception of the Greeks, had the effect that the Enlightenment had and still has. The Enlightenment begins in the, the 17th century, begins in England and it moves to France and then to Germany and to Central Europe, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, what later would be the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, but it, uh, in its main form, never penetrated Eastern Europe until the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Now, the Enlightenment, uh, because of the uh, Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation, the church was weakened. Not only was the church was weakened, it made uh, many errors uh, in tactics and in strategy. And uh, the trial of Galileo is a prime example of that. Uh, you cannot, uh, so to speak, uh, fight science. It's a great mistake uh, that's made in our world, too. The science is fact. Torah deals with fact, it deals with reality, it deals with truth. And because of that, therefore, uh, the church rejected uh, much of the uh, science that was being discovered. You're talking Galileo, Newton, you're talking a new era when uh, human civilization explored the past and it explored the natural world that we live in and it came to certain conclusions and uh, the church uh, always felt threatened by science and persecuted uh, those who uh, espoused it but you cannot defeat ideas by putting people into prison or by executing them and uh, most of the time, ideas have to run their course. And either they prove themselves valid or they'll disappear by themselves. So uh, in the uh, 1600s, uh, there arose a group of people, scholars, 
who looked at the world around us and uh, they portrayed a natural world uh, that so to speak did away with the supernatural world and since much of religion uh, was founded on the supernatural world Uh, The Enlightenment brought about the rise of agnostics and atheists and eventually of anti-religious people. Not only that they were not religious, they felt that religion itself was uh, a detriment to mankind. And uh, the Enlightenment uh, brought brought new ideas. It brought ideas... uh, the divine right of kings was gone until then kings ruled because God wanted them to rule and so to speak in heaven they ordained that uh, this person should be the king and he should have the ultimate power over millions of people the enlightenment said uh, that's nonsense he was not ordained by heaven He was born uh, the son of a king, and that's what made him a king. And kings generally, uh, why should they have power over other people? And uh, it's a long progression of hundreds of years. But the Enlightenment fathered uh, democracy, uh, that uh, it's no longer the rule of the elect few, but it's rather the rule of the people, so to speak, which uh, has its own uh, detriments to it. You know, Winston Churchill famously said that democracy is a terrible form of government, but he said it's the best one that we know of. And there's a certain truth to that. So the Enlightenment brought that out. The Enlightenment also... uh, because of the oppression of the church uh, was driven towards tolerance of other faiths. Now, this came about because of the Protestant Revolution and because the Protestants themselves were so split into so many different sects that somehow they, they were forced to tolerate each other. And eventually this idea of tolerance would extend to the Jews as well. Uh, For uh, a thousand years, the Jews were not tolerated. And Judaism was not recognized as anything but a devilish, uh, negative faith. But now, uh, the Enlightenment uh, looked at it uh, in a different light, and they brought about uh, that sooner or later, and we'll see... uh, in in Germany mainly but in France as well and then later in England and then in Austria there were uh, edicts of tolerance where uh, the government uh, agreed that Judaism uh, was a legitimate faith and that Jews had a right to practice that faith now that's a great turning point in European history And it continues until our time. 
I just uh, noticed and I, my wife read to me an article from a Hebrew newspaper today that the church uh, in the last month has said that uh, Jews don't have to convert to Christianity to obtain salvation. I mean, it's a revolution. It's, it's turning the church uh, and what was on its head. It's interesting that there are those that say that that's just a new form of anti-Semitism because they're not going to try and convert Jews, so therefore the Jews are going to go to hell, and that's that's their purpose, right? But I don't think that that is exactly what the Pope had in mind. This Pope is an apocalypse anyway, so it doesn't doesn't make much difference. And... Uh, so uh, the Enlightenment, uh, uh, Enlightenment also brought a fascination with the Bible, because the, the church basically kept the Bible under wraps. Nobody really knew it except the priest and the minister, and uh, people didn't have uh, biblical studies. And now all of a sudden there was a great interest in the Bible. And the great interest in Hebrew language, as I pointed out last time, especially the Puritans, the Pilgrims, the Quakers, etc., all studied Hebrew, spoke Hebrew, and Hebrew was recognized uh, with Greek and Latin as part of a basic classical education that one would obtain in the university. But... With the study of the Bible, in uh, after one or two centuries, uh, because of the anti-religious bias of the Enlightenment, there arose something that was called biblical criticism. Biblical criticism posited that the, not only that the Bible was not divine, but that it was written by committee over many, many centuries. In other words, Moshe was not the author of the Torah. Uh, numerous people wrote the book of Yeshayahu, etc., etc. And if you posit that, then it, uh, the Bible is not uh, not only not divine, but it's you know it's a nice book, but it's not it doesn't have to be taken too seriously if it interferes with one's own value system. Now, biblical criticism in our time has declined everywhere in the world except at the Hebrew University. (laughs) Because it's, again, an idea that has run its course. A famous incident with Ben-Gurion that he submitted the the Chumash to uh, a computer that was programmed for biblical criticism. I don't know if it was a computer or the scholars. They came up with an idea that there were 10 or 12 different authors based on the prose. So someone then submitted uh, uh, Ben-Gurion's Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel to the same group, and it also came up that there were 10 or 12 different authors. But in any event, uh, biblical criticism was a great blow to religion, and it was a great blow to Judaism per se, because Judaism is founded on the Bible, and it's founded on the divinity of the Bible. 
once you take away the divinity of the Bible, so there's not going to be much left to Judaism. As uh, we'll see uh, further in this uh, talk. And uh, therefore, this part of the Enlightenment uh, proved very harmful to the Jewish people and to certainly to Judaism. On the other hand, because of the Enlightenment, uh, Jews felt that uh, they, they were not willing to simply take being persecuted lying down. They, they protested for the first time. And the protests would take on many different colorations and many different strategies as how to avoid this persecution. Now, uh, the uh, anti-religious nature of the Enlightenment uh, is very complicated. Uh, for instance, uh, most of the founding fathers of the United States uh, were agnostics, if not even atheists. Yet, uh, they all spoke about God. Uh, they put uh, God on the uh, currency. Uh, they were all very conversant with the Bible. So you had this uh, mixture of uh, traditional biblical heritage and uh, mixed into it you had this stream of agnosticism which uh, therefore the Bill of Rights freedom of religion so freedom of religion really means freedom from religion the, the, no government shall enact a law that touches upon religion and many other ideas such as that which became the basis certainly of American democracy, but a democracy throughout the world, are founded on these ideas. So the Enlightenment built up something called humanism. Humanism means that we're going to do what's good for human people. We don't need a Bible to tell us what is right or wrong. We don't need a Bible to tell us what is good or fair and what is unfair. We human beings can figure it out themselves. And as rational human beings, we can certainly figure it out. So the moral code, therefore, would not be a religious code. It would be a code that society somehow agrees with. And uh, as we have seen the difference uh, over the past 50 years in Western society and Western civilization regarding what is an accepted moral code. That is a continuation of the ideas of the Enlightenment, that there is no fixed moral code. There's a human code. And what human beings want to do, what they say is all right, and everything. So, so that, uh, so to speak, takes precedence over anything else. And uh, that is how societies be configured and created. Uh, the ideas of the Enlightenment uh, spawned revolutions, especially against kings. Uh, eventually, the Enlightenment made England a constitutional monarchy, where the king or queen is not all-powerful, is uh, subject to parliament. 
Every year the queen uh, reads a message that's prepared for her by uh, David Cameron. She's just a mouthpiece. And uh, so the uh, English have held on to the royal house because somehow it does something for them. But uh, in France, uh, with the Enlightenment, people like Rousseau and others uh, who rebelled against the church and rebelled against the king and violently did so. And uh, France still today is divided between, uh, so to speak, the clericalists, the ones who have uh, loyalty to the church, and uh, this, the government is strictly atheistic, anti uh, the uh, the French Revolution uh, imposed terrible, terrible uh, atrocities on the church and on priests and nuns, etc. And it gave rise to Napoleon. Now Napoleon has a great effect on the Jews, not only the pastry, but the. Uh, <laughs> the person himself and Napoleon looked at the Jews and he said we have to solve the Jewish problem he's the first one that addresses it in that fashion there's a Jewish problem what's the problem it's what Homan said there is a strange nation a foreign alien population that they somehow they don't do they don't feel themselves part of the country they don't feel themselves part of the society they don't listen to our laws so what are we going to do with them so for a long period of time Homan's solution was adopted by the rest of the world as well that what we're going to do with them is we're going to destroy them that's the way to solve the Jewish problem. So even though mighty efforts were expended in uh, destroying the Jewish people, they never somehow quite did it. There always were Jews around. So Napoleon looked at it and he said, no, that's not what to do. Napoleon is the heir to the French Revolution, even though he's the dictator, the emperor. So even though they got rid of Louis, uh, Napoleon is the next Louis, and uh, he's a master uh, military leader. France is the strongest power in Europe, and he has great success. He's the master almost of all of Europe, with the exception of England and Prussia. And uh, he tries to invade Russia. And he he burns down Moscow. He was he got farther than Hitler did, but eventually Russia is too big to swallow, too large, too too populous. The weather is too bad. But in 1809, he has this idea that he's going to solve the Jewish problem. How is he going to solve the Jewish problem? He's going to construct a Sanhedrin. He's going to construct a group of rabbis. Now, he didn't know that when you have a group of rabbis together, very little is going to be accomplished. <laughs> but he, and to make it like the Sanhedrin, 
He's got 70 rabbis. And he's got all sorts of rabbis. And he submits a, a list of questions to the Sanhedrin. And he is certain that the Sanhedrin will answer the questions the way he wants them answered. And that that will solve the Jewish problem. Because the questions will do away with religion. There'll be only civil divorce. Only the laws of France will apply. In other words, the Jewish problem will be be solved by the fact that Judaism will disappear. And it will disappear because the rabbis will make it disappear, which is a theory that bears uh, investigation. The the, uh, head of the Sanhedrin was a great Talmud Chochem, Rav David Zinsheim, who was a Rav in Alsace. We have a very famous sefer of his, Yad David. So uh, what happened is the Sanhedrin equivocated. Yes, no, maybe. But that was the answer. The answer, the answer. And I always knew that I was in the, when in the yeshiva. If they, if you went for a bechina, you went for an exam. Then the exams were all oral which is, in my opinion, a poor system. But in any event, anything the Rebbe asked you, the answer was, it depends. (laughs) 90% of the time you were right. (laughs) Because uh, if you study Gemara, then it depends. (laughs) So that's how they answered him. It depends, it could be, maybe, we'll see, you know. He he found it to be... uh, a very, very empty uh, accomplishment. But he came to the idea that he was going to impose Western culture, which then meant the Enlightenment, as far as France was concerned, on the Jews. And that meant destroying traditional Judaism. Now, there's a famous... uh, a dispute between two great Hasidic rebbes. Napoleon in 1812 comes to Poland and to Russia. And there he, oh, he comes to the heartland of Jewry. And he promised the Jews freedom, which they did not have in Poland and in Russia. Under the Tsar, they were impoverished and persecuted. And he said, I'm going to take care of all of that. You have equal rights, you be citizens, you'll be able to own land, you'll be able to vote, everything, you know, I'm going to free you from your shacks. So then there were Hasidic Rebbeim who said, we should support Napoleon. (coughs) The Jews should support Napoleon because he promises to free us from the oppression that we are suffering from. The Alter Rebbe the founder of Chabad, Rav Schneir Zalman, uh, he said, no, we have to oppose Napoleon. He said, as bad as desire is, he says, but if Napoleon wins, uh, Judaism will disappear. And therefore, uh, for the sake of Judaism, not for the sake of Jews, uh, we will support desire over Napoleon. And the truth of the matter is, that most of the rabbis agreed with the uh, idea that they would oppose Napoleon because they were afraid 
of what uh, his program would bring. Now what happened was that in 1815 Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo and that was the end of Napoleon. But it was not the end of the Enlightenment and not the end of the ideas that were brought. And uh, in the 1700s, for the first time, the Jews in Germany, now Germany was not a united country. Germany was made up of uh, over a hundred different little uh, municipalities, duchies, uh, uh, you know, ruled by noblemen, etc. Oh, Bismarck is the one that united Germany and turned it into the monster. So, uh, in parts of Germany, especially in Prussia, now, Prussia was the easternmost province in Germany, but it was the most enlightened province in Germany. And uh, Jam and the AM will, of course, continue with Rye Barrel Wine and the uh, lecture on the Enlightenment coming up here at Jam and the AM. And I thank her by wine, of course. His uh, lectures are remarkable. You can uh, you can find them all at one eight hundred four nine nine W E I N one eight hundred excuse me four nine nine W E I N and RabbiWine dot com RabbiWine W E I N dot com. It's Wednesday on this twenty sixth of July, third of Av. Happy birthday to those celebrating birthdays today. Sixty seven degrees, partly cloudy, a high of seventy seven tonight. Only seventy seven. Wow. Partly cloudy tonight, low sixty eight. Tomorrow cloudy, a high eighty one. Yerushalayim will be next week. They're at 94 right now. Wow. Up in Guilford, New York, 58 degrees. That's our friends at Camp Misora. And, uh, boy, it must be. Oh, 58's not that bad. And here in uh, New York City, 67. Uh, the Tish Above program has been announced for um, uh, Brooklyn, New York. This is the annual event that attracts a whole host of amazing speakers. Um each and every year. And this year is no exception. Uh, they'll Davin Mariv Monday night starting at 9 p.m. with Eicha and Kinnis, of course. Rabbi Chaim Walken, Rabbi David Goldwasser, our very own Rabbi Goldwasser, will be, uh, will be taking care of that. Um, they'll be speaking that night. Shachris at 8 a.m., then 9 o'clock on Tuesday, Rabbi Ephraim Levine, Rabbi Tzvi Mordechai Feldheim, Rabbi Noah Orlowick, Rabbi Yosef Wiener, Rabbi Shai Tahan, Rabbi Daniel Gladstein, Rabbi Nussin Sherman, um, Rabbi Moshe Tovia Leaf, Rabbi Fischl Schachter, they'll all be part of it. Uh, plus, of course, two Mincha Minyanim, uh, one at 2 p.m. and one at um, at 6.50, and Mariv at 8.40 p.m. It's all at the Ocean Parkway Jewish Center, 550 Ocean Parkway between 18th Avenue and Ditmas. For information, 718-998-5822. 718-998-5822. Don't forget to wrap up Tish Above with us at the Nahum Siegel Network. Project Inspire and NSN presents the end of Tish Above program, The Missing Link, hosted by Charlie Harari. That's going to be happening on Tish Above itself uh, during the last two hours of the fast. So join for that. A uh, reminder that Hidden, Hidden is being shown tonight in Borough Park to the ladies at Terrace Golda, 1362 50th Street at 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. To the men at Lipschitz Hall, 5014th Avenue, tonight at 8 p.m. Uh, and then a reminder in Teaneck at Congregation B'nai Yashurin on West Englewood Avenue this coming Saturday night at 10 p.m. Hidden is that brand new incredible documentary from Project Witness. Go to projectwitness.org 
or dial 718-WITNESS. Again, that's 718-WITNESS for information on that. Uh, what else do we have for you? Tomorrow's the bake sale. The bake sale to um, support the Lone Soldier Center. That's happening tomorrow, 10 a.m. and Friday, 10 a.m. at Breezy's, 572 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst, supporting the Lone Soldier Center in memory of Shlomo Rindenau. Everyone should try their best to get there Thursday or Friday. Rabbi Wine joins us Friday. Sunday he'll be at the uh, congregation Beth Abraham in Bergenfield. The topic is destruction and redemption, the month of Av in our world. Rabbi Wine will be there uh, at the shul on Sunday night. Tishabov service at the Isaiah Peace Wall for the 40th annual, uh, 40th consecutive year, led by Rabbi Avi Weiss, coordinated by Amcha. Phone number 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. Bring your talismans fill in 2 p.m. Isaiah Peace Wall, 43rd and 1st. 43rd and 1st, New York City. Bring your talismans fill in. Tishabov, Tuesday, 2 p.m. If you work in Manhattan and you're working on Tishabov, use the opportunity during lunch hour to go Davin Mincha and join in a show of solidarity for Jews around the world. Uh, it'll be much appreciated, that's for sure. All right, so there you go. Some of the things that are happening, some of the things that are going on as uh, we continue through our community calendar. Rabbi David Goldwasser, oh, and a reminder that um, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe is coming up at 8 o'clock this morning here at JM in the AM. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas or of Zebnebis of Alevi, and Zechonishmas Esther Basrebis of Alevi. Here is. Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We say in Tehillim, Mizmar Asaf, a song to Asaf. Rashi notes it would have been perhaps more appropriate to begin Kinala Asaf, a dirge for Asaf, as this chapter mostly describes the destruction of the Besamikdosh. Rashi explains that Asaf sang because Hashem in his mercy poured his wrath on the stones and wood, and not on Klal Yisroel. Rashi also offers an explanation in Shmos. Elep kudea mishkan, mishkan o'edus. The word mishkan is repeated twice. This alludes to the fact that the destruction of each of the two temples was collateral for the sins of the Jewish nation. In a similar vein, the Sefer Menachem Tzion states that the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash is because Klal Yisroel was saved from total annihilation. This is an expression of our Hakara Satov, or our gratitude. The Dubno Magid presents an interesting situation to illustrate the appropriate mindset that is demanded because of the Beis Hamikdash and its destruction. A woman who hadn't had any children for many years finally was pregnant. When it was time for her to give birth, however, the doctor told her it would be impossible to ensure the life of both mother and child, and therefore he recommended terminating the pregnancy in order to save the mother's life. The mother said, I have no desire for life if you choose to do that. It would be better that I die and that my child should live. And so the child was born, and the woman passed on. 
When the boy grew older, he was taken to the gravesite on the day of the yard site of his mother in order to say Kaddish. Those in attendance noted that the boy was neither contemplative nor was he serious. He seemed rather light-hearted and irreverent. The people who had accompanied this young boy explained to him that his mother had given up her own life for his and in fact deserved a lot more from him. The son was overwhelmed because he was unaware of the true circumstances of his birth. So it is with us. Can we possibly say that we are like that young boy who didn't realize what his mother had done for him? Do we mourn over the loss of the Besamikdash? Do we say Kaddish for the Besamikdash with reverence, being cognizant of the immensity of the loss we have suffered, acknowledging the kapara that we attained as a result? Or is there an air of levity and diversion, something that takes us away from our mourning over the loss of the Besamikdash? It's during these days that we remember the Chazal, Whoever properly mourns over Yerushalayim in the base of Mikdash will merit to see its rebuilding speedily in our days. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. JM in the AM. Thank you very much, Rabbi Goldwasser. Um, we are continuing with the lecture. And again, a reminder, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe delivered the third of Av in 1994, during the Shloshim observance, is uh, going to be coming up. Uh, we are going to try to reach the conclusion first. I don't know if we'll get to the conclusion, uh, but we'll get to as much as possible as possible on the um, on the lecture of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, right? Beryl Wine on the Enlightenment. He continues at JM in the AM. The uh, different type of person. He was a, a classical music composer. Uh, some of his symphonies are still performed until today. Uh, he was a great warrior, le- leader of an army, and even though he himself did not like Jews, uh, he tolerated them, and he allowed them rights, especially rights to be able to go for a higher education. Now, that was the uh, great contribution of the enlightenment to Jewish life because until then no Jew could go to university without converting to Christianity and uh, if you didn't go to university your options in life were very limited much more limited than they are today today you can still start up a company without going to university and having a college degree does not quite guarantee you success in life but in the 18th and 19th centuries admittance to university that was your ticket your ticket to success your ticket to get out of the ghetto your ticket to move now in uh, in Prussia Jews started to go to universities and that's the story of Moses Mendelssohn who uh, was a uh, a great uh, Jewish scholar and uh, who became a philosopher, a well-known philosopher. And uh, he had a connection uh, to the uh, court of Frederick the Great. He knew his son. 
and uh, because of all of these things uh, the Jews now uh, became if not full-fledged citizens but they became part of German society and because they became part of German society Mendelssohn for instance uh, translated the Hebrew Bible into German his purpose was not to give a Bible to the Germans his purpose was to teach German to the Jews because the only way he felt that the Jews in Germany would ever be able to amount to anything was they had to speak German they couldn't speak that gibberish Yiddish and you had to be able to read German and write German Mendelssohn himself would be a victim of the tolerance of the victim of the times because his four of his six children converted to Christianity and all of his grandchildren were non-Jewish including the composer Felix Mendelssohn but the Nazis wouldn't play Mendelssohn's works anyway now uh, in Germany because of the fact that the enlightenment was so strong there and it took on such uh, opportunities for Jews uh, there arose the reform movement the reform movement adopted the ideas of the enlightenment of humanism they were not atheists but they said the Bible is not divine Uh, they uh, believed in biblical criticism and they said that uh, in the famous phrase we are good Germans of the mosaic persuasion we're going to be just like the Germans and in fact the reformed temples in the 19th century in Germany were carbon copies of the Lutheran church it's interesting that the church had men and women sit separately so the reformed temples had men and women sit separately he came to America where men and women sat together in the church so then uh, mixed seating uh, became uh, the norm now reform uh, became radical because of their drive to be accepted into German society and because of the ideas of the enlightenment so therefore Hebrew was completely discarded and it was all in German Uh, no mention of Zion or Jerusalem appeared in the prayers any longer because we're in Germany we're good Germans we're going to stay in Germany the famous slogan Berlin is our Jerusalem who who wants to go who who has any ambition to go to a uh, distant uh, desert country Uh, that's not our home that's all in the past we're not going to let it happen and reform was very very powerful in Germany probably uh, 80 to 90 percent of German Jews were reformed the Orthodox communities were very small and they were mainly rural I mean uh, uh, the great Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch in Frankfurt so his Kehillah with only a few hundred families at its height reform swept the board 
And that was because of the ideas of the Enlightenment. One of the ideas of the Enlightenment that most appealed to Jews was that the Enlightenment said the world is getting, civilization is getting better and better. In other words, the Middle Ages was terrible. All those wars were terrible. But now that the Enlightenment, the ideas of the Enlightenment are coming into play, uh, then uh, the world is getting better and better. Now, part of it is true, it was getting better and better because of the advance of technology and some advance in medicine, though the major advances in medicine would await uh, the last 50, 60 years of ours. But uh, it was getting better and better. And so who doesn't want it to get better and better? Uh, No one saw the 20th century in the 18th or 19th century. No one imagined that there would be a century where uh, uh, 150 million people would be destroyed by government and war. And that uh, today uh, we have severe doubts whether the world is getting better and better. But part of the enlightenment was that it's getting better and better. And uh, the American Revolution uh, made a great effect because the American Revolution was based on enlightenment ideals and ideas. And the success in breaking away from Britain, from England, and conquering a continent uh, was a great boon Uh, to Enlightenment ideas. Another point that the Enlightenment is the father of, uh, if you take the ideas of humanism and you take religion out of the equation completely, you come to an understanding of what Marx wanted to do, what his program was. In the middle of the 1800s, you have this Jewish apostate Marx, Karl Marx, who was a German, And he uh, came up with a theory of uh, history in which uh, there is always a clash of classes and of different economic systems and that the, uh, the world came now into the capitalist system, but the capitalist system would fail and fall and then uh, this idea of his, of the workers of the world, would unite and own uh, all the property, and we would have a utopia. Uh, this idea was a product of the Enlightenment. It's an extension of the Enlightenment. It's the idea that uh, we can figure out history. Since there's no God in history, there are no supernatural forces, it's all rational. So let's examine it. We can figure it out. And we can devise a program that'll work. And that's what he tried to do. He wrote a great uh, tome called uh, Das Kapital, which uh, almost no human being has ever read in its entirety. Uh, But he and Frederick Engels published a little pamphlet called The Communist Manifesto, which when I went to college uh, was required reading. Maybe it still is today. And uh, in it, he portrays this uh, utopian world, but not only based on no religion, based on anti-religion. His famous statement was, religion 
is the opiate of the masses. By that he meant that if a person is, God forbid, sick or in pain, so then we give the person opium. So the person doesn't feel sick or in pain. But in reality, the person has got the disease and the disease will destroy that person. So he said the same thing about religion. Religion is an opium. As long as people believe in God, so they accept the fact that the, the boss is cruel. They, they accept the fact that the rich persecute them and uh, take advantage of them, etc., etc. We get rid of religion, the people won't take it anymore. They'll revolt. And when they revolt, so then that's when the great new world is going to come. That idea would have uh, an enormous effect on the Jewish people perhaps more on the Jewish people than on anybody else in the world. Because Marxism uh, still exists, still drives a great section of the Jewish people. And uh, its ideas uh, have not yet fallen away, even when the Soviet Union fell away, as it did. Now, uh, the... uh, What happened now is that uh, if uh, Prussia has enlightenment, next door to Prussia is Lithuania. My father was born in a village, and my family came from a village that was 18 kilometers from the Prussian border. So uh, the ideas of the Enlightenment start to filter into Eastern Europe. And Napoleon was driven out, but his ideas were not driven out. And uh, so slowly, the reform does not take hold in Eastern Europe for various reasons. Uh, the main reason is because uh, in Germany, you, I, th- I mean, I think so, and I'm never wrong. So in uh, in Germany, you know, uh, your neighbor was a doctor, a musician, a professor. You know, it was cultured, civilized. There was order in the streets. So you wanted to be a German. In Poland or in Lithuania, your neighbor was alcoholic, an abuser, illiterate. Who wanted to be your neighbor? And therefore, uh, to create reform, to imitate uh, the, uh, the church in Poland or to imitate the church in Lithuania was not an attractive option at all. But there arose this idea of the Haskalah, of the Jewish Enlightenment. In other words, taking the ideals of the Enlightenment and applying them to the Jewish people. So the first thing we have to do, I mentioned again, is biblical criticism. We have to knock out the Bible. But on the other hand, we want to enhance the Hebrew language, which is based on the Bible. There are a lot of contradictions. Our people are pretty schizophrenic. Uh, So uh, there arose different forms of Haskalah, So there was a Hebrew Haskalah, the revival of the Hebrew language. In Europe, they did not use Hebrew as a spoken language. The Sephardim did. In all the countries of the Near East, 
the Jews were able to speak Hebrew, especially Hebrew amongst themselves. Arabic was the lingua franca, but they spoke Hebrew. They knew Hebrew. The Ashkenazim did not. The Ashkenazim spoke Yiddish. Yiddish was the lingua franca. Hebrew was reserved for the synagogue. Now came this idea of the Haskalah that we're going to make Hebrew a living language. We're going to write poetry in Hebrew. We're going to write plays in Hebrew. We're going to develop Hebrew as a language. And uh, this had a great effect, uh, not only on uh, uh, those who followed the Haskalah, but even on religious Jewry. Uh, the Nitziv of Alojan, for instance, the great Rosh Hashiv of Alojan, uh, would only read Hebrew newspapers on Shabbat. He would not read anything that was not Hebrew except on Shabbat. And there were Jews that only spoke Hebrew on Shabbat. And so you had slowly the beginning of a revival of the Hebrew language as being a spoken language and as a literary language. And this was especially true in the yeshiva system. In the 1800s, when the yeshivas were formed, Valozhin especially, the mother of the yeshivas, so in the yeshiva, the yeshiva was the only ball game in town. If you had a good mind and you wanted to have intellectual challenge, so to speak, then you went to yeshiva because you couldn't go to the university because to go to the university in Lithuania or Poland or Russia meant that you had to convert. So the only ball game in town was the yeshiva. And therefore, people came to the yeshiva who were intellectually stimulated, but they didn't necessarily believe in anything. And the struggle of the yeshivas uh, throughout the 19th century in Eastern Europe was how to deal with these uh, infiltrators, so to speak. So, for instance, Bialik was a student in Valoshan. And uh, many others. Uh, there's a book, uh, it was published here by a professor, Emanuel Itkus in the Hebrew University, a book of uh, memoirs about Valojan written by all the non-religious who went to Valojan. And they write about it so beautifully and with such great nostalgia, but, uh, you know, uh, had nothing to do with their lives or beliefs. So you have uh, this idea of the Haskalah, and I want to tell you how uh, people don't, my grandchildren don't believe me, but uh, when I grew up in Chicago, so there were great Lithuanian rabbis, I mean real, you know, great Talmud Chachomim, great scholars, extraordinary people. Almost all of them in their Shabbos sermon would quote Bialik. You couldn't make a speech if you didn't quote Bialik. Because that meant you were a peasant. And if you will look at the uh, commentaries to Chumash that are written in the 19th century by the great rabbis, uh, Rameyer Simcha, by the Malbim, 
the Kabbalah, Medrash Vamas, etc., you will see a completely different tone and a completely different use of resources and of insights that ever existed before because they were all influenced by the fact that they are writing to an audience now that is influenced by the Enlightenment. And so to speak, uh, they have to deal with it, not only deal with it, they have to appear as though they are also enlightened. Because otherwise they would not have an audience. The audience they wanted to reach were the youth. And the youth were sold on the Haskalah. The same thing in Germany, if you read Hirsch. Hirsch is a very complicated, complex issue in the Jewish world today. Because we don't know what to do with him. He does not fit the uh, current political correctness. On the other hand, he has to fit it. But uh, if you read Hirsch's commentary to uh, Chumash, which he wrote in German, it's been translated into Hebrew, it's been translated into English. But the commentary is in German, which itself is an enormous departure. I mean, Rashi... uh, Rashi was not. Rashi uses old French when he has to 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 particularly identify a word, but his commentary is not in old French. And here, uh, and it's uh, he says things there that uh, you know are, uh, that show the influence. Now he's bitterly anti-reform. But the ideas of the Haskalah have affected it, as they have affected the Jewish world generally. And then you had uh, a Haskalah that was based on Russian. Jews uh, felt that, uh, which was a copy of what was happening in Germany, that Russia is going to be our motherland, and that somehow the Tsar will come to his senses and be nice to us, and that uh, therefore uh, you have to read Russian, you have to know Russian, and if you don't know, at least you have to read, so there's so many Yiddish translations of Russian uh, novels and Russian books, so all of that uh, had an effect. Now we're going to get to the overlay of Marxism. Marxism struck deep roots with Eastern European Jewry. Now, because uh, many of the ideas of Marxism are, so to speak, Jewish ideas. You have to be fair to the worker. You can't exploit the worker. The rich are not entitled to dominate everything. We want to have a world of peace. We want to have that everybody So all of these ideas uh, had, so to speak, a Jewish basis to it. It resonated in the minds and hearts of Jews. And Marx proposed a program. See, the, the Jews said, the program is we're going to wait for Mashiach. We're not going to do anything. That was Judaism, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, some people even 21st century. We're not doing anything. We're passive. 
that God will come, he'll take us, he'll redeem us. I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Don't worry, that's not our job. Mark said, no, what are you talking about? We're going to do it. Comes the revolution. J.M. in the A.M., it's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSegal.com, on the NachumSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Um, we want to play my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which we do each year on the 3rd of Av, the day that he delivered it to Shloshim for the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So what we'll do is, I know we scheduled it for 8 o'clock, so I apologize. We're going to just take a few minutes just to close out Rabbi Wine's lecture on the Enlightenment. As soon as it ends, we will go to my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe on this Wednesday, nine days edition of JM in the AM. We can create the perfect society. We don't have to wait. And to a great extent, uh, Marx is a uh, secular messiah. And these ideas, socialism and communism, uh, became... Uh, the majority ideas of Eastern European Jewry. And later on, when Herzl will create the Zionist movement, uh, so you have a marriage of the Zionist movement, which is also religious in its essence, Zion in Jerusalem, with Marxism, which also is Jewish in its essence, so to speak. And... Uh, that, that's the story of the first uh, 60, 70 years of the Zionist enterprise here in the land of Israel, of the kibbutzim, etc. The Mapai, the Istadrut, all of that. So uh, the Enlightenment did that. It, uh, it created these enormous forces within the Jewish world. The uh, tragedy is that uh, all of these forces were aligned against traditional Judaism, against observance of commandments, against traditional Jewish life. Uh, they all felt that part of the rebellion was to throw off everything, not to keep any vestige of it. So you had the anomaly of uh, Hebrew-speaking, Bible-knowing, uh, anti-religious people who were determined to destroy the observance of Judaism in order to bring about this better, greater, new world that was supposed to happen. And uh, with varying degrees of success, uh, they achieved many of their goals, much of, uh, much of what has happened to us. Now, that's different than the assimilation, for instance, which exists in America today. That, that assimilation is not based on any ideology. It's based on ignorance and on having a good time. And uh, the complete lack of any idea of identity, of self-pride. Uh, so therefore, you know, why not? That's a different, different type of enemy. That's a different type of problem that requires a different type of solution. But here we're talking about an ideology. We're talking about a strategy. We're talking about a vision that invaded the Jewish world. And that uh, vision uh, came to dominate much of the Jewish world. 
And a Holocaust would change all of this a little, and uh, Stalin would do his part too. And uh, so, uh, in fact, sometimes change ideologies and change how the world looks at things as well. Now, eventually, these ideas of the Enlightenment uh, created uh, within the Jewish people, within the religious world itself, uh, different factions. There are those that said, let's take the positive sides of the Enlightenment and incorporate them. Like secular studies, until, uh, until the 19th century, the 20th century, Unless you went to university, no Jew had, uh, when you went to Cheder, they weren't going to teach you two plus two. You went to Cheder, it was Breshe's Bora. But now we're going to have, uh, we're going to have a combination. Uh, Hirsch did that in Frankfurt. He had what he called the Real Schule. And then the afternoon classes, which were German and which were secular studies, uh, the students sat without their heads covered even, because that's the way it was in Germany. Yeah, the famous statement of Rabbi Salanter, he said, uh, if a person goes bareheaded, he's not an apicorus. But he said, all and go bareheaded. So symbolism took on a role. And you have that problem, you see, it goes on here in Israel today, secular studies, core curriculum, the, the uh, struggle that exists, that it doesn't seem capable of being resolved. That's the question of the Enlightenment. Can you adopt some of the Enlightenment? Or by adopting some of the Enlightenment, eventually you'll adopt all of the Enlightenment and that will lead to all sorts of disasters, religious disasters. So as I began at the beginning of this lecture, uh, the Enlightenment is that, part, that contribution of Europe to the Jews has had the most effect, perhaps, much more of a greater effect than, for instance, Christian Europe had or Protestant Europe had because uh, that the Jews were able to deal with. That didn't appeal to them. But this uh, type of idea of an enlightenment, of a rational world, that uh, did appeal to them and it did fuel them. The enlightenment found its greatest foes in the Hasidic world. The Lithuanian world was much more influenced by it. In the Hasidic world, there were pitched battles, physical battles, regarding the Enlightenment. And uh, because the Hasidic world is a supernatural world, not a rational world. And therefore, it naturally stands in complete opposition to all of the ideas of the Enlightenment and to its basic form. So uh, we're still living in the middle of it. We're still influenced by it. We'll have to wait and see how it turns out. But meanwhile, I hope to see you next week, and thank you for coming, and a Shavua Tov. J.M. in the A.M. with Rabbi Beryl Wine. The Enlightenment is, is the first lecture in a five-lecture series called Europe and the Jews Part 2. All right? That's how it works. And we'll do...
We'll start the second lecture in that series coming up here at JM and the AM. But first, uh, and I know I'm a drop behind schedule. I apologize for that. It's seven minutes after eight o'clock. We just wanted to conclude Rabbi Wine's lecture. Uh, first, I will um, play for you as we do every as we do every uh, third of Av, which is the day it was originally delivered. This um, uh, this um, speech, this eulogy by my father, Rabbi Zev Siegel, was delivered in New Jersey um, in a program that was under the uh, leadership of Rabbi Moshe Herson um, on the Shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe back in 1994. And we play it each year, and um, it is one of the most amazing biographical sketches of anybody I've ever heard, if I say so myself in regard to my own father. So my father, Rabbi Zev Siegel, and his eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, an amazing perspective biographically and historically. Here it is at JM in the AM. This coming uh, Shabbos, we shall read in the Torah the summation of Moshe Rabbeinu. And among the things that Moshe Rabbeinu says is Echo Eso Levadi Tochachem Masachem Berifchem. Moshe Rabbeinu confesses that he doesn't know how he is able to carry the burden of leadership all by himself. And then he continues, so he decided there should be a leadership assisting him. And he says the qualifications of leadership should be the following, and this is what the Torah tells us. Get yourselves men Chachomim, wise men, Unevonim, understanding men, Vyiduim leshivtechem, Vaasimem beroshechem. Now you can't help but associate this statement of Moshe Rabbeinu where he designates the qualifications that there is a very strong relationship to Chabad. He says, Chachomim, Chochmo, Nevonim, Bino, Veyiduim, Das, and this is Chabad. The leadership of Klal Yisroel was given to the Rebbe and he fulfilled that mission to the maximum that can be fulfilled. He had Klal Yisroel, the entire people of Israel was his concern. 
and a deep concern. Every corner in the world, no matter how forsaken it was, and no matter how few Jews were there, he had them on his mind, in his heart and his soul. If there was a man qualified to reconstruct Jewish life after the great Hurban, after the tragic Holocaust that befell our people, he was one man who did it. He reconstructed Jewish life in a very commendable way and at the same time he made Jews feel without any exception whoever they may have been that they are a part of this reconstruction He worried about every Jew wherever he was. And he had a certain devotion and dedication to Claudius Lloyd. I used to sit and I had the great privilege and I don't pretend that I understood the rabbi. I don't pretend that I can evaluate his scholarship or his spiritual greatness but at the same time in my own way I was privileged to spend a great deal of time it is no secret many of you know it I used to come in 12 o'clock midnight and walk out not earlier than 3.30 in the morning and sometimes even later. And after a while when we were sitting the bell used to ring and I tried to get up because I knew there were people waiting there people who were older than me and as I was trying to get up the Rebbe said in a tone almost of chastising me he says what are you, we are talking about the Klal wir reden wegen Klal Sachen and there was no disturbance when he was engaged in worrying about Claudius Royal. And I can go on and on about his great concerns. Nothing else to point out except the Jewish community in the former Soviet Union. Where three generations of Jews were alienated from everything that had to do with Judaism. 
And the only underground movement that succeeded in existence during the Bolshevik regime was the Lubavitch movement. And I know for a fact, I can stand here for hours and testify how this underground movement functioned with real devotion and dedication to everything that had to do with Jews and Judaism. And the Rebbe was the leader. No matter how many thousands of miles he was away, they were waiting with a great deal of thirst to hear something from 770. I was in Riga, and Professor Branover was there. And you probably heard of Professor Branover. Beside being a devoted Hasid, a great scientist, universally recognized, a real Jewish leader, respect from all walks of life in the state of Israel, under every government, and Professor Branover told us the following. When Gorbachev came to power, the Reb, so people were very scared at the time. And the Rebbe sent a message to the Jewish community in Russia, and he told them, don't worry, things will get better. And naturally, they accepted the rabbi's word. And it calmed them down a little bit. But then Branover says when Gorbachev was in Israel recently, and he spent quite some time with him, so he asked Gorbachev, did you really, when you came to power, did you really think that you are going to change from your predecessors? And Gorbachev said, no, not at all. In fact, my idea was to tighten a little stronger than my predecessors. Gorbachev didn't know where he's heading to, but the rabbi had enough insight to predict that things will improve. And I can testify it from another angle. You remember when the El Al plane was hijacked to Algiers? And the rumor was that Ariel Sharon was to be on this plane and he was told by the Rebbe that he should not travel with that plane. That was the rumor. When I met next with the Rebbe, so a little time passed, 
And I was curious, and I said to him, I hear rumors that you stopped Sharon from traveling down that El Al plane that was hijacked to Algeria. And the rabbi said the following, he made sure that he did not accept when I said he stopped the plane. And he said, you know, Sharon came to say goodbye to me before he went to Israel. And I said to him, don't go. And Sharon didn't go. Says it's true. So naturally, obviously, I ask the next question. If you knew that the plane will be hijacked. Why only save Sharon? You could have saved everyone else on that plane. And the rabbi gave me a look like I interpreted that it was not the wisest question that I have asked him. <laughs> and he says to me the following, he, says, he said it in Yiddish, do you think that I saw a plane being hijacked. He came to say goodbye. And all I did was say, don't go. For me, this was testimony of a certain insight that very rare human beings possess that insight. And this is what Braunover meant. And this insight was used to reconstruct Jewish life in the world again. A great deal was said about the Rebbe's involvement in Eretz Israel. I knew many, many leaders in Jewish life, Zionists and non-Zionists. I had the privilege to be the youngest delegate, believe it or not, I was young once, the youngest delegate to the last Zionist Congress before the establishment of the Jewish state in Basel. And I sat on very important committees. And I saw leaders as well in the Torah world as well. But every one of them had a certain area of knowledge and insight. One may have been politically, diplomatically well-versed. Or one may have been involved in the economics or one may have been involved in science or in military affairs but the rabbi had them all and I can again say it from personal experience the hours that I listened and discussed of every 
every conceivable phase in the life of Eretz Israel. Not only education, not only the practice of Torah, but every conceivable phase of life in Eretz Israel. And I don't have to tell you his concern about the Shlemus of Eretz Israel. That was on his agenda. And in the last few years, he had something to worry about, as we see it now. We talk about outreach a great deal. There are many, many who are occupied with outreach, and God forbid for me to minimize it. I know what it is. I was a little involved with it. But the outreach of Lubavitch is second to none. The devotion and dedication and the misiras nefesh of the shlichim in all parts of the world. I was sitting a short three weeks ago, a Friday night, who is now acting as the chief rabbi of Latvia. And you know the days are very long now in that part of the world. And I heard the Friday night The devotion, the discipline, nothing was difficult. And if there is Jewish life today in Riga, it is this chief rabbi who could have stayed in Kfar Chabad with his family. Instead, he is suffering in Riga. Or a young man, many of you may know Glossman, a wife, a young wife with three infants, doing youth work in every possible way. He's running now a summer camp. And I don't have to tell you, I, I had occasion to, a couple of years ago when I spoke for a group who was involved with Lubavitch, to tell you about someone who was very, very active here, Rebley Braskin, who is in Casablanca for many, many years. And I saw him there in 68, also with infants. And when I went down from his apartment about one o'clock at night on a Friday night, and I say to him, 
excuse me for keeping you so late. So he says, what do you mean, excuse me? First of all, you are the first one who is here, who was there. There in Morocco in those days, there meant Israel. That's number one. So we heard what's doing. And secondly, he says, let my children know that there is, there is a Jew in the world who speaks Yiddish too. I can tell you many stories, but my time is limited. I can tell you what the Rebbe did in South Africa when I was there in the 70s, when the Jewish community was in a turmoil, and the Rebbe calmed them down, and the Shlichim there did their job. If there is a Seder in Himalaya, who does it? If a shochet was needed in Romania, who supplied it? If a mohel was needed in any part of the world, they were there, and they are still there. Yes, indeed, outreach to its maximum all part of the reconstruction of Jewish life. Tremendous amount of creativity. You remember when the rabbi started with the Mifzat Filim in the Six Day War? And Filim was not the most popular thing on the American scene. It was popular maybe on the day of Bar Mitzvah or a month before the Bar Mitzvah. But I have noticed what film did. When you come to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, a religious Jew has no problem. Either he dams Minche or Mayriv or Shachris, and if he comes in another part of the day, he says, stealing, he reads the Psalms. But what does a non-religious Jew do at the Kotel? What does he do? Another piece of paper on the wall. But feeling became synonymous with the Kotel of the non-committed Jew. He comes to the Kotel, he knows that this is the time to put on film and say Shema Yisrael. Or all the other projects, the lighting of candles, another creativity. The Rebbe was the first one on the American Jewish scene who did not permit Jews to run away from Jewish neighborhoods. But as it was said at the same time, 
the Rebbe never forgot the individual. And I want to share with you one of the experiences I had, which I must confess to you marked the rest of my life, particularly in the last few years. It was a great help to me. On one of my travels, and until this day I don't know how the rabbit discovered that I'm going somewhere, I was called and the rabbi asked me to do something in that particular country. I came back, so I gave him a report, and again with lack of wisdom, I say to him, I conversed in Yiddish, I said, the Rebbe's of Wissen, as is nicht gewenk in geringe Sach. Sie sind sehr schwer. I said, the Rebbe should know that this was not easy, an easy task for me. It was very difficult. And again, the Rebbe looks at me and makes me aware how uh, unwise I am, to put it mildly. And he says to me, Alav Segal, Zint ven, otir gemacht a contract mit nuribene shalailom, faragringen leben. The rabbi says to me, since when did you make a contract with the Almighty for an easy life? And as I said, among many, many things, this has become a guide in my own life. Yes, indeed, my friends, there is a great deal to be said and a great deal will be said because in all this there is immortality. The Rebbe was not only the Manig Hador, he will be the Manig Hadoros. Many, many generations will benefit from what the Rebbe was for the people of Israel. And I know I'm as sure as I can be that right now as he stands before the Kisei HaKovod. He is doing everything he possibly can to bring about our Geulo Shleim of Amen. There it is. That is uh, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a brilliant biographical sketch, if I say so myself. 
and I see no reason why I can't, uh, of the of one of the greatest figures in the recent Jewish history, of course. Many would say the greatest person in Jewish history of the 20th century. And um, that was delivered back uh, during the Shloshim, the third of Av, Shloshim observance in 1994 of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Wednesday morning at JM in the AM at 25 minutes before 9 o'clock. Reminder on Tisha B'Av Tuesday, Isaiah Peace Wall, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue. Bring your towels and fill in for Mincha. Bring your towels and fill in for Mincha, everybody. Again, that's um, that's happening at the Isaiah Wall, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York City. Bring your towels and fill in. It is a, uh, a golden opportunity, by the way for you to um, utilize your lunch hour if you're working in Manhattan on Tisha B'Av for uh, Mincha, and in this case at the Isaiah Wall. Show solidarity with Jews around the world by being there that day at 2 p.m. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine has been uh, brilliant, as usual. Not that he needs my, uh, <laughs> he needs my um, support on that. Um, and uh, he has been brilliant, and... Uh, we are now ready to start. We are now ready to start uh, the second lecture in his part two series of Europe and the Jews. We are ready for Europe and the Jews part two. This is the second of the five lectures in that series, and it is entitled. It is entitled Imperial Europe. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. It concerns the uh, rise of imperialism in Europe and its effect upon the Jews. The uh, beginning of the story is naturally in the uh, 15th and 16th centuries when uh, the Spanish and Portuguese explorers left Europe and discovered uh, Africa, eventually America, new uh, routes to Asia, the world shrank. And just as in our time, air travel has shrunk in the world considerably. And uh, because of the fact that the explorers were in the main Christian, the Spanish and Portuguese were Roman Catholic, the English were Protestant mainly, but because of their religion, uh, they uh, not only discovered, uh, but they also converted. Uh, they were bringing uh, good news to the unwashed, to those who didn't know better. And there was a sense of civilization, almost of noblesse oblige. The good people in the world had to somehow raise all the other people as well. And if they want to be, didn't want to be raised, then they killed them. But their motives, so to speak, were noble. The other main motive, aside from, uh, and that's why you find many of the explorers were missionaries. Many of those who discovered uh, the inner recesses of Africa and America as well uh, were missionaries, priests who came to uh, create uh, bastions of Christianity among the heathens. Uh, this always presented a problem to the Jews because the Jews are living, it's the same idea that happened in the Crusades. Why should we have to travel 
uh, all the way to the Middle East to uh, Christianize the Muslims. We got the Jews next door and they're not Christians. So what should we do with them? And that problem existed here as well because uh, the pressure for missionary activity was great, was very well financed, not only by the church, but by private organizations as well. Because after all, you're doing a favor. You're uh, creating uh, heaven for them. And here in the middle, you've got all these people who are not Christian and who are stubbornly not Christian. So what about them? So to a certain extent, the missionizing of the heathen exacerbated the Jewish problem in Europe. Because now the question arose, what do we do with the Jews? Now another reason that uh, really drove the establishment of colonies and of discovery was all of the legends about wealth, gold. There were cities of gold. Uh, There was uh, magical places where uh, gold was in the streets. And so therefore we had to find those places, travel there and get the gold. And uh, in our uh, time, uh, there still are gold miners, but uh, the idea of a gold rush has existed in these previous centuries is practically unknown in our world today. But then it was very, very big. It was something that people wanted to do. You can make your fortune overnight. For instance, the great uh, gold rush in San Francisco and California in the 1800s uh, brought about a sizable Jewish emigration to the west coast of the United States because there was gold and the gold mines of South Africa and the diamond mines of South Africa attracted uh, tens of thousands of Lithuanian Jews to leave Lithuania and move to South Africa. Now the Jews were not the miners in the main, but they were the Suppliers, you know, if you wanted, you had to have food, you had to have equipment, you had to have mining uh, equipment, and the Jews were the ones that ran the stores and uh, were the suppliers in the gold rush. All gold rushes peter out. Some people make a fortune, some don't. It so happened in South Africa that there were Jews that made a fortune in the diamond business, uh, Bonato, Oppenheimer, etc., and they really set the diamond business uh, for centuries. They ruled it. Uh, but uh, it, it was an idea that somewhere there's a way overnight to become wealthy, which is something that people always are looking for. They're looking for the magic bullet. They're looking for the the one thing that'll do it. And it's much easier than uh, working 50 years or just plodding along making a living. And therefore, uh, the impetus for immigration, for Jews starting to leave Europe, which began already in the 1700s, 
the Jews went to the West Indies with the Spanish explorers on uh, Christopher Columbus's uh, expedition. There were many Jews that were part of the expedition. And that's where the rumor began that Columbus himself was of Jewish descent, which may very well be true. And uh, since uh, Europe was not very friendly to Jews, and since Jews were downtrodden and in the main poverty-stricken in Europe, if there was a place in the world where one could, so to speak, make it quickly, easily, and have a better life, that certainly was attractive to Jews. And from there we have the legend uh, that uh, our uh, ancestors taught us that the streets of America are paved with gold, or that you just have to, you know, you can pick it up. So America remained the land of opportunity, but it wasn't paved with gold. But the idea of people leaving, and you're going to have millions of Jews leaving Europe, a very great wave of immigration uh, that was driven by the fact that they uh, believed that somewhere the streets were paved with gold. And somewhere they would be able to make it. And uh, without uh, understanding the impetus for immigration... Uh, then you don't really understand the whole story of why Jews left. Uh, we're talking about two and a half million Jews leaving uh, the Russian Empire alone in the 19th century. And that was a substantial number of people relative to the entire Jewish population. It was almost 25% of the world's Jewish population picked itself up and left. Now, those that came to the land of Israel did not come for gold. There never were any rumors that the streets of Jerusalem were paved with gold. So that was uh, more or less an ideological and religious immigration. That's why people left. But all the other immigrations, South Africa, Australia, the United States, South America, the West Indies, the people left because of the fact that they felt that they would become wealthy. And if they didn't become wealthy, their children would become wealthy. And that that was something you couldn't dream of in uh, Eastern Europe. In Europe generally, there were very few rich Jewish families. Uh, You know, you had the Rothschilds, etc., but uh, that was not representative of the mainstream of Jewish life. And that's why you have uh, Tevye singing, If I Were a Rich Man, because that was what was on their mind. And rich was always relative, right? The rich man in the shtetl could be poverty-stricken, but he was a little less poverty-stricken than his neighbors, so he was the rich man. But wealth in terms as we know it today, affluence, uh, that never existed before in the Jewish world. Yeah, so uh, to a great extent today, our streets are uh, paved with gold. Now, the Spanish and Portuguese, uh, when they came to a place, they said, well, now this belongs to Spain, or this belongs to Portugal. 
And that's why in Brazil, which is a country, an enormous country, with such a big population, speaks Portuguese. And South America speaks Spanish. In America, used to speak English. <laughs> because of the fact that uh, that was the language of the explorers. And the explorers imposed their language and culture and their religion on the places that they came to. Now, this gave rise to the age of imperialism, empire building, colonies. Uh, Europe had an idea, uh, aside from the religious angle and the personal financial angle, they also had a national angle that colonies would create great wealth for the mother country. In most cases, this did not work out. The English were an exception. The English were able to make the colonies pay. And because they wanted to pay even more, that's why you had the American Revolution, the tea tax, etc. But they wanted the colonies not only to be self-supporting, but to bring income into the mother country. Now, in the 19th century, after the Napoleonic Wars, the competition between the great countries in Europe uh, lay in imperialism and in colonies. So first of all, uh, we, we, there are different uh, empires here. So you had, for instance, the creation of the German Empire. And Germany was, uh, before Napoleon, was a uh, hundred different little governing bodies dukes, barons, little places. And now after Prussia had defeated, together with England, had defeated Napoleon, Prussia became the dominant power in Germany. And the Prussians eventually took over all of Germany and united it under Bismarck, under the emperor, the Kaiser, Germany became the largest country in Europe in terms of population, in terms of the army, in terms of the economy. Germany was the engine. Now that caused its neighbors to be nervous. And the two main neighbors to the west was France and to the east was Russia. Poland didn't exist then. Poland was divided between Austria, Prussia, and Russia. And therefore, there became a competition. Now, this national competition not only was for power in Europe, it was for power in the world. And so Germany wanted colonies. And Germany claimed colonies in Central and East Africa which brought them into competition and confrontation with England. England was the supreme imperial power. There was a time uh, the sun never set on the Union Jack. England controlled uh, almost a a third of the world's surface and 25% of the world's population. Uh, and uh, the British imperialism, the Israeli was its great champion. Uh, they were able to uh, take over India. India, the enormous subcontinent, 
Today it has almost a billion people. But then it was hundreds of millions of people. And you had like 10,000 Englishmen running uh, six, seven hundred million uh, people who lived in India. And India was a prophet. All the companies are called the East India Company, the West India Company. And the fact that in the, in the Caribbean they called it the Indies because of the fact that India represented, and the fact that the Native Americans were called Indians, India represented the triumph of imperialism. It paid to be an empire. And the empire was supported not from Europe alone, because Europe did not have the resources to do so, but it was supported by the rest of the world. And England was the master at it, Australia, New Zealand, and it populated it originally. Australia was populated as a penal colony. They took people out of the jail. Maybe that's why it was so successful. Uh, There's a legend. I don't know if it's true or not, but whenever I visited Australia, they told me the legend that on one of the ships, uh, nine Jews came on the ship. They were prisoners. They were taken out of uh, debtor's prison, whatever. And so they sent the message back to England, send us another Jew, so we'll have a minion. (laughs) And that's how the original synagogues in Australia began. But uh, all over the world, the English flag flew, and it was very profitable for England. Now, Disraeli was the... uh, architect of it, but it was continued throughout, uh, even uh, at the end of the Second World War, Winston Churchill said, I did not become prime minister to preside over the dissolution of the British Empire. But that's exactly what happened. And uh, so you had competing empires. So Germany, uh, Cecil Rhodes, who was the uh, British uh, explorer and governor in in, uh, Africa. So he dreamt of uh, a swath of Africa, north to south, from Egypt all the way to South Africa, under British domination. So you had uh, South Africa, and then you had Rhodesia, and then it was southern Rhodesia and more than northern Rhodesia. Today it's Zambia and Zimbabwe. And then you had Kenya and Sudan, and finally you get to Egypt. So England controlled the middle of Africa. And Germany is in the middle there. Germany controlled part of Uganda. The French uh, controlled uh, other Mali and other countries uh, that exist today. They still speak French there. So you had all of these competing empires uh, rubbing up against each other. And uh, because of this, uh, you had constant friction, constant danger of war. But at least the war was not in Europe. The war was going to be in Africa, was going to be in America, was going to be in South America, was going to be in the West Indies. It was not going to be in Europe. Uh, The Jews... uh, reacted, as I mentioned, to all of these colonial developments. And they, uh, they saw it as an opportunity, an opportunity to get out of Europe, an opportunity to make a fortune, an opportunity to have a better life. Now, what happened was that uh, 
you had empires that did not have colonies. The Habsburg Empire, which was Austria. Uh, Austria controlled Hungary. The Austrians and the Hungarians didn't like each other. Uh, it's hard to like either of them. <laughs> so uh, what happened was that uh, in order to keep the empire together, they made what was called a dual monarchy. The dual monarchy meant that the emperor of Austria was the king of Hungary as well. And it was called the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was very unwieldy because Hungary had parliamentary rights, it could veto certain things, and on top of it, Austria looked to have an empire in Europe. They were, Austria is landlocked, they didn't have any ports on, so they wanted to have ports on the Adriatic. In order to have ports on the Adriatic, you had to control the Balkans. Now the Balkans is a, uh, a swath of land uh, that is riven with blood for thousands of years. Different ethnic groupings that just don't like each other, never have liked each other, and often make war against each other. We had a Balkan war in the 1990s, and in fact NATO today still has a large force of troops in Bosnia and on the Serbian border, in order to uh, try and keep the peace. So Austria, uh, there was Croatia, there was Slovenia, there was Serbia, there was Montenegro, there was Bosnia, there was Kosovo. All of these are uh, different groups, many times different religions. Uh, the Slavs basically were Russian or Greek Orthodox, while uh, the Croats were uh, Roman Catholics, Slovenians. Rabbi Beryl Wine on Imperial so Europe. Uh, we will open tomorrow, Thursday morning here at JM in the AM with that uh, lecture. And, um, and then continue uh, with more of Harry Wine's lectures. Information at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and of course, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com, uh, for information about all of his lectures. Uh, pay attention, careful attention to our network programming all through the day. It'll be appropriate selections for the three weeks and nine days. Uh, as we continue our three weeks format until a Wednesday, the middle of the day, the day after Tisha B'Av, and then we start our journey uh, to Israel with our friends at uh, NCSY. Looking forward to an amazing Yom NCSY on Thursday and an incredible visit to the NCSY programs next Friday morning. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners' sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a Wednesday for us here at JM and the AM. Thanks so much for tuning in. Tomorrow we're back with plenty more in our three weeks, nine days format. Have a fabulous Wednesday. Till tomorrow, NachumSiegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.